Okay, now we're on. Good morning. You know, I've never read this um, scripture. We're going to turn to Hosea um, chapter 11. And I've never read this passage. And when I was, you know, reading it this week to prepare for the Sunday, I was so moved. It, what, a, what a beautiful passage. Just really be prepared for this. It, it really is um, demonstrates such a, a, a beautiful love that, that God had for his people um, and has for us. Okay, so when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give up you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pam. I was talking to one of my kids this week, and uh, she said to me, I, Daddy, I really like this series we're doing. I said, thanks. Um, but she said, what she said was, you know, we tend to when we talk about the Lord and look at Scripture and Jesus, we, we tend to talk a lot about our heart and our posture towards him, life of worship, faith, repentance and faith, and trusting Jesus. And she said, we don't often talk about and think about God's heart towards us. And I was struck by that, and I'm glad she said that because she's getting the, getting the main theme of this series. We're doing that this summer. We are looking at the heart of Jesus in our series, using the book Gentle and Lowly as a springboard. You know, most of the time our diet is working through books of the Bible. Every once in a while I like to do a little topical textual series, and we were using Gentle and Lowly as a springboard this summer, a fascinating great little book on the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. I think we got one left out there, actually, if you want to pick one up still and read through it this summer with this. Such a great little book. And we've, we've been answering these these kinds of questions. What is it that primarily defines Jesus? Not just what he has done for us and taught us, while that is of utmost importance, but who is he in his person, as a person? What is it drives Jesus from the heart? What is he really like in his being? What is his disposition towards sinners, towards his people? What drives him and moves him towards sinners and sufferers? And what comes most naturally to Jesus? Those are the questions we've been looking at. And these questions are super important because as a Christ follower, as an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, we are to know him personally. 
Not just in our mind, but personally in relationship. And not just as judge of the world, which is important, but intimately and as a person. But we live in times in our life, don't we, with a disconnect with Jesus. I quoted from Ann Voskamp's book, Waymaker, a few weeks back, but here's what she said. If there's a deep disconnect in the church between what we believe and how we actually live, it is because we've forgotten the way to live actually and intimately connected to God. Our walk will only match our talk when we live attached to his heart. That's the impetus behind this series, The Heart of Jesus. We need to know the heart of Jesus to live intimately attached to him to grow. And so today we're looking at a fantastic passage you just heard read by Pam from Hosea 11 and the tenderness of Jesus. I think it's the only Old Testament, Old Testament text in this um, short little six-week series that we're looking at, and it gives us a peek into God's heart. But when we speak of the heart of God, we know Jesus is God, and so it's fitting to say that Hosea 11 speaks of Jesus' heart too. Because what the Father's heart beats for, Jesus' heart beats for. And what I think is going to get us started this morning, and I hope help us appreciate what we pull out of Hosea 11, is, uh, and appreciate more the tender heart of Jesus, is if we consider first two things that we underestimate in the church. Two things that I think maybe every Christian underestimates. So we're going to start there. And then we're going to look at three truths from Hosea. So hopefully you've got your outline. Have that open for fill-ins. Those of you who like to write and take notes and learn best that way. And also have your text open to Hosea 11 as we're going to read some verses from it again. But let's start with these two things we underestimate. Here's the first one. We underestimate the wrath of God held for those outside of Christ. Outside. Actually, every word is important in there. The wrath of God held for those outside of Christ. Outside of Christ. Well, the Bible speaks a lot about God's wrath towards sinners. And and Jesus actually speaks of hell and God's wrath more than anyone in the Bible. Even though that's the case, the church has had different seasons of, of underestimating this and maybe overplaying our hand at times and and overstating it. So we kind of had a pendulum swing in the church. When we see these statements of God's wrath in the Bible, sometimes I think we don't quite understand them. And we either underestimate them as a church, maybe where we're at, maybe now as a church. Maybe there's been seasons where we overplayed them and downplayed God's tender side. But it's so hard to truly get it. And the reality of God's wrath sometimes to me seems distant or otherworldly or like that thing that's out there and coming and Uh, and don't know really what it looks like, all the metaphorical language of the Bible that describes it. Some people think the topic is off-putting, so it makes us us uncomfortable. Let's just say that. Let's just be honest with that. The idea of a loving God who's also wrathful against sinners makes us really uncomfortable, and so we kind of underestimate it. But I think it's because we underestimate the sinfulness of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher from, who died in the 80s, a British guy, had this quote he said about this idea of underestimating and thinking of ourselves as a sinner. He says, you'll never make yourself feel that you're a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation of being a sinner. We're all on very good terms with ourselves, aren't we? And we can always put up a good case for ourselves, even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners. We'll never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. 
What's he saying there? He's saying we underestimate the sinfulness of sin in the eyes of God and therefore underestimate his wrath at sinners because a lot of times we don't have an appropriate conception of God or his character of who he is. How do I know we do this? How about some illustrations? Uh, Because, here's one, we use the language in our culture much more of mistakes rather than sins, don't we? How many times have you heard a politician say, mistakes were made? (laughs) Mistakes were made. Or we use the language of of blame shifting. Do you know how many times you've done the same thing to me? You ever said that? I have. Blame shifting. We, We blame shift. And if we understood the sinfulness of sin, we, we, we wouldn't squirm actually even so much at the idea of God's judgment on sinners too. A couple symptoms that we maybe think that way. Or at least we'd find ourselves more grateful maybe at receiving his, his grace. And the reason we underestimate this idea of God's wrath on sinners outside of Christ is because we either have a cloudy or falter, faulty understanding of who God is, his character. That's our first one. We can underestimate that and the reality of that. Here's our second one. We also underestimate the tender heart of Jesus for those in Christ when they sin. So outside of Christ, in Christ. Those are really important words here. We underestimate the tender heart of Jesus for those in Christ when they sin. So as you're thinking about that, I want to make sure that we're really clear at the start. In the first underestimation, we're talking about God's wrath for those outside of Christ. It isn't for everyone. It's for those apart from Christ, apart from him. And the second statement, his tenderness tenderness towards us when we sin is for those in Christ, those who have accepted Christ. It is discriminatory. It is discriminatory based on your position in Christ. I know it's a negative word in our culture, but I'm glad God's wrath is discriminatory. We can use that there in an appropriate context based on your position in Christ. So a good question to ask yourself, even as we begin, is are you in Christ or outside of Christ? Where are you? Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? Are you a disciple and apprentice of Jesus or outside of him? The Bible says God created humanity in goodness and yet humanity sinned and rebelled desired to live apart from God, but Jesus in grace came to earth as God in flesh to live the life we couldn't live, die the death we couldn't die, taking on God's wrath for those who would believe in him. And new life, the prospect of being in Christ and therefore forgiven, is given to those who repent and believe. So the question again today, are you outside of Christ or in Christ? It's the most important question for you today. If you're not in Christ Jesus, the Bible says this, you're condemned already. John, Jesus said himself in John 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But if you turn to Jesus and put your trust in him, you are in Christ, covered, protected in him. If you're not sure today, keep listening. Jot down some questions if you have them. Come talk to me afterwards. I'll be out in the gathering place. Let's go back to that second underestimation, though, as we just hit that kind of most important question. Are you in or out of Christ? Do you believe this is a true statement? That the tender heart of Jesus for those in Christ when they sin, that his heart is tender? 
Or do we, under, or do we underestimate Jesus' tender heart for us when we sin? The question is this, how do you think of God in your mind, in your heart, as an image? How do you think of God when he responds to you when you sin? If you're in Christ now, how do you think of him, how he responds to you when you sin? Is your image of him a frustrated, grumpy old guy? (laughs) Angry? Ticked off? Disgusted with you? Annoyed again, again, annoyed? Do you feel that he distances himself from you, steps away from you, kind of turns his back on you, doesn't want to associate with someone like that? We're going to see in this Hosea passage that we absolutely underestimate God's tenderness towards his people when they sin. The Bible feels no discomfort like we might when highlighting this tender grace and mercy. Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's a radical statement. When we sin, God's love for us causes his grace to surge, Romans 5 says, in abundance towards us. Because grace isn't a thing, really. It's a person. Grace is found in a person, Jesus. And Jesus moves towards sinners. We're given a person. That's grace. So let's look at these three truths now. As we just talked through those two underestimations, I want to now help us see that they're true by looking at these three truths from Hosea. So let's look at them to kind of hopefully estimate appropriately both the ugliness of our sin, but also the tenderness of the person of Jesus towards sinners. Here's our first truth Hosea 11 shows us. God loves us as the best father to son or daughter. He loves us like, as, like, like the best father to a son or daughter. A little context on Hosea. Hosea was a prophet of God called by God to call out to God's people, I think in the 700s BC, uh, to call out to them in this really dark, rebellious time of sin and idolatry. You heard in the passage, they were worshiping idols. It was a time of political turmoil as well. Uh, Israel had had six different kings in 30 years. Imagine living in this time. Um, some evil, some okay, just different kings coming and going. And in this chapter here, the prophet Hosea is speaking for God and about his relationship with Israel, his people. Look again at verses 1 to 4 to, with me as we think about this fatherly love of God for sons and daughters. Uh, look down with me at your text. He said, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, another word for Israel, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them. God speaks so tenderly here of his people. He says, I raised you. I called you. I elected you. I, like, like a child, I've, I've, I've loved you. I've cradled you in my arms, Israel. I taught you how to take your first steps. 
I've led you with gentle restraints, not harsh, not harsh, but cords of kindness, he called them, and a bands of love. Think of your parenting as a moment, whether you're parenting now or have or grandparenting. Think of that for a moment. As sinful parents, we have sinful children. Do you agree with me? Okay, some agree. We can agree on that in the room today. They're sinful, we're sinful. And when they disobey, many times in, in, in my worst moments as a parent or as grandparents maybe, our temptations is to respond in like kind. Frustration with frustration. Anger with anger. Maybe with shaming. I can't believe you would do that. How could you do that again? Or our tone of responding to their anger is just as angry maybe. At our worst moments. And sometimes I'm more angry at their disobedience um, or usually the inconvenience it's caused me, <laughs> or, the, or the pride that it's damaging my own image of being a parent. And I'm more angry at that rather than the damage that the disobedience will do to their heart or their relationship with Jesus. At our worst, right? But there's times at your best as a parent and grandparent when your child or grandchild disobeys or does something wrong, there's something that goes on in the heart at your best moment where you feel a great sorrow, isn't there? A grief, a sadness, a deep compassion, even you would say, that wells up when they sin. Because I see them as they are and you see it, oh yeah, they're like me, a sinner in need of grace. And what they're doing is destructive for them. And ultimately, deadly, actually. It's a death sentence without Jesus. And I see it keeping them from more intimacy with Jesus. There's a well of tenderness that that wells up at my best and yours too. And so sometimes in those moments, my correction and discipline takes a Hosea 11 tender tone that we clearly see with God here. And so for you, our best parenting when we're mirroring Hear what Hosea is giving us. It's a picture of a tender parental response in in God to us when we sin. A, A tender, compassionate heart towards us. Do you believe that? It's an important question. Do you believe that is how God responds to you? Do you find that to be your first instinct when you sin to think of God that way? When you just know you've blown it? There are moments when I hold my kids that makes me tender when I remember those moments like God was saying in Hosea 11. Yes, I helped you to walk. I I spoon-fed you when you couldn't feed yourself. I changed you. I held onto your bike seat as you you rode away and I sat next to you when you learned to drive and pretended I was really calm. (laughs) I haven't done that one yet, but that's coming. I bandaged up your skin knee. I sat with you in the ER. Those are kind of some phrases that can help us relate to Hosea 11 and, and God's words there. Just like Israel, God has brought us new life and made us his sons and daughters through Jesus. And even in God's discipline of us, it's, it's perfect. It's hard, we know that. But he wouldn't love us, Hebrews says, if he didn't discipline us, the book of Hebrews says. And you know, I'm going to physical therapy now for that shoulder injury I talked about a couple weeks back. Um, and going for, you know, multiple weeks, I don't know how long we'll go, but um, if you've ever been to a type of physical therapy, 
or try to work on an injury or recover from a surgery, which would probably cover all of us in the room, probably. Um, it can be really painful, can it? Re- I'm getting some, re- some of the most yeses I've ever seen in here. Big head nods. When a body part has been injured, it kind of requires pain to fix it, doesn't it? The phrase, no pain, no gain, right? No pain, no gain. The pain and hard work, the manipulation that this person's doing, I'm like, ah, you know, it's worse than the injury, you know, to squeeze and get blood to go to the injured area. It's meant, though, to bring wholeness and healing and strength back to a weak, injured part of the body. Well, why do I do this? Why do I go? It hurts. It's not fun. It's not fun. Why do I do it? Well, I do it because it's part of my body. Think about that. The injured part, it's part of your body. So do you ever really notice parts of your body when they're functioning perfectly fine? Nope. You don't, do you? You never really notice parts of your body until they're hurting, right? Until they're hurting. But when they do, like a toothache, muscle injury, tendons, something like that, ah, it's all you can think about. That's all you can think about. It takes over your mind. It's part of our body. And so we go to extreme lengths to get it healthy. It's part of me. We are part of God's body. That's the imagery. We are part of his body. Sons and daughters, he says here in Hosea 11. When he sees you sin, he responds like the perfect parent. And so he doesn't chop off that part of his body, does he? We would never do that. We would never do that. He disciplines it. He gives it physical therapy. And sometimes it comes in the form of physical things, doesn't it? That discipline. But even his discipline is tender. It's got a purpose. It's to restore that health and strength and wholeness and and peace, the shalom of the Bible. We are sons and daughters, Hosea 11 says, from the mouth of God. That's our first truth. The second one, though, is a sad reality that God reminds his people of even as we are reminded of, even though he's a father, our second truth is this, like rebellious children, we're bent on turning away from him, the text says. We're bent on turning away from him. Think about the Israelites. Now, a little context again. God had provided for them so much, hadn't he? If you know the story of the Old Testament. So much for the Israelites. He'd freed them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt with mighty miracles, the ten plagues. He'd fed them as they wandered in the desert with bread and meat from heaven. Who does that? He'd taken them from the promised land and conquered their enemies before them. He'd established them in the promised land as a great nation with great leaders and kings and prophets and priests. And they were rebelled and were bent on turning away from him. Verse 7 says that. Take a look at it. My people are bent on turning away from me. He's like, I raised you. I spoon-fed you. I taught you to walk. But my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, the verse goes on, he shall not raise them up at all. I hope after just thinking about God's parental tender nature that we hear that verse, you hear the heartbreak in that verse. You hear the heartbreak there. There's such heartbreak in that verse, especially after reading how tenderly God reminisces on his raising his people from infancy. You get this quick turn in seven. 
but they're bent. They're bent on turning away from him. You can almost feel, I hope, some of God's pain there. He's not emotionless. You can feel some of God's pain there. And you know a bit of this pain if you've seen a loved one fall into ruin by poor, sinful, we won't call them mistakes, we'll call them sometimes sinful choices or destructive choices. You want so much to help them, don't you? Think about that, that family member. But in our case, many times, in our case, many times we're powerless. But there's nothing, a lot of times there's nothing we can do. And it's like watching a slow motion wreck sometimes with the people we love the most. And what does it do? It causes you horrible grief and sorrow, doesn't it? Especially when it's a family member. Now let's imagine the grief now that it causes a perfect God who perfectly responds to sin in the totally appropriate manner when his people turn their back on him when he's gone to such extreme lengths to raise them from infancy, to spoon feed them, to change their diapers, to help them to learn to walk. Magnify ours as imperfect people that many times can't even do anything about it. Magnify ours by infinity, I guess. When they turn their back on him. But let's be fair, it's not just the Israelites that did that, is it? This is us too. This is you and I, God's people today. We might not now bow to Baal, right? To statues and idols of other religions, but oh, we have our own religions materialism, leisure, pleasure, government can even be one, work, family, privacy. How about that one? The religion of privacy. Don't don't get too close to what's going on in my stuff. You know, we can have that in the church even. Yeah, I'll be here, but don't try to kind of pull me in a little more. Religion of privacy. When I hear Hosea say we're bent on turning our backs on God, I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Galatians. Remember his words to them in chapter 1? He said this, it's on the screen. I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting. I hear they're kind of turning your back on him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, I don't think any of us would say today we're deserting the call of God and turning our back on God and turning to a different gospel, but clearly that is something that can happen to those who God has called and those who professed people or uh, professed faith in him, or Paul wouldn't have wrote about it in Galatians. And he says it in Hosea 11 and Galatians 1 here that that's a possibility. On the one hand, we do it every time we sin. Every time we sin, in that moment, we are saying, this is the good news for me. This thing I want. This thing that ultimately is destructive for me, and yet I want it. Every time we sin, we're actually doing that. We are turning our back on God in that moment saying, this is the good news thing for me. This is the thing I want more in this moment. And in that moment, we want it more than God. If you're honest with yourself, you know that's true. That's why we call sin moral insanity. It's moral insanity. It's, 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 it's a different gospel. It's a different good news. It's believing another story, a lie. That's the clearest way. That's the clearest way we're bent on turning our back on God. And that's the clearest way in the gospels, actually. It stands out like, oh, yeah, that's a sinner who needs a savior right there. Right? You can think of some characters in the New Testament. 
That's a sinner who needs a savior. That's the clearest. That person's turned their back on God. And why is it moral insanity? It's walking away from the giver of life. The one who fed us, he says in Hosea 11, I fed you. You taught us. You taught us to walk. You raised us. And when we sin like that, we take the good news of Jesus for granted. Even though just like the Israelites, God has done so much for us, we can live passionless as Christians, joyless as Christians, or passively without hearts stirred by the love of God. We too can be those rebellious children bent on turning away from him. But did you know we can also turn our backs on God with our goodness? What do I mean by that? Reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son. The lost younger son, now if you know that story, he's very clearly turning his back on the father, isn't he? You know that story? He, he, he uh, asked for the inheritance before his father has died. That's a big no-no, by the way. And he goes off to live life how he sees fit, just to go and do his thing, to go blow the money. He's got a life of like sex, money, and rock and roll, basically, is what he goes and does. He clearly in the story, and you, you bet the audience will stand there going, yep, he's the one. Look at the young son. He's turned his back on God. He's walked away. He's clearly the problem here. But the audience of Jesus' parable was mostly made up of Pharisees. They were people who were supposed to be close to God. They knew a lot about God. They knew the law. They kept the law. They would have been the most obedient people around. Think of Paul. They would have been like, those are the good guys. They were the best. And in the parable, the older brother stays home. Do you remember that story? He always does what is right. Always does what the father wants. But when the father extends grace to his wayward sinner brother, what does he do? He loses it. He refuses to enter into the feast. He refuses to welcome back his younger brother. He just totally outright refuses it. I want nothing to do with this. Tim Keller in his great book, Prodigal God, has a quote that's worth quoting here that unpacks this. Turning our back on God with our goodness, actually. He says this, why doesn't the elder brother go in? That's to the feast, the party. He himself gives the reason. Because I've never disobeyed you, he says in the parable. The elder brother's not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It's not his sins that create a barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his own moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that's keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. It goes on to one more slide. The hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways from getting out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position in which they could tell the father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled. But one did so by being very bad and the other by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the father's heart. Both were lost sons. To put it another way, of course you can rebel with outright sin, but you can also do it with prideful, self-righteous goodness. You can turn your back on God in both ways. Now, as I tell this story, some of you can clearly see it like, yeah, I was the younger brother. I have temptation to go back to be the younger brother. That's just me. And your temptation is probably, can Jesus forgive me? Can he? With what I've done, he can. But in some ways, in some ways, that's actually the, almost the easier, I'm not going to say easier, but it's the more apparent maybe way in the New Testament. 
where, where people, he, come, he came to sinners. Sinners have need of a savior. Those who've got it all together, like the Pharisees listening to the story, why do I need you? Some ways that's the most obvious, easier, more apparent, I guess, way to see your need of Jesus. And your struggle is thinking, will he be gracious to me when I come with all I've done? But my guess is in our setting, in our setting, in most churches, many of us, more of us have the elder brother problem. And we turn our back on God and our goodness. So how do you know if you're prone to this elder brother type of turning your back on God? Well, do you get angry when things go wrong in your life? Not necessarily a little anger, but, but angry. Because you feel like you've been living good. And so God owes you a better life. Or when you blow it, are you riddled with shame and un- unable to forgive what God forgave in you years ago? Unable just to let it go. Uh, there's a phrase I've heard, we're either angry at thee or angry at me when things don't go wrong in our life, if you're an elder brother. Angry at thee or angry at me. Elder brothers obey to get the things of God, not just God himself, to control him, to put him in debt, to get him in your back pocket a little bit. Instead of obeying to know him, to love him, to grow in intimacy and joy and resemble him. So you can rebel not just in your sin, you can rebel in your goodness too. But that's not the end of the story. And I'm so glad it's not. There's one more truth in here I want us to see this morning as we come to the final one. One more truth to see in Hosea 11. How does God respond to his people's sin? Whether it's the younger or elder brother types, both, it's this way. God's holiness, truth number three, actually moves him. His holiness now moves him in warmth and tenderness towards his people when they sin. That might not make sense at first glance because it didn't for me this week. His holiness is what moves him in warmth and tenderness. It's totally surprising and shocking as it comes in verse 9. Uh, they deserve to be wiped out. He's described them. They've, gone, they've turned their back. They're worshiping idols. They, uh, remember, don't underestimate the sinfulness of sin here now. They deserve this. This is the one who raised them, saved them, brought them up. God will be totally just in, 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 in wiping them out off the face of the earth. But that's not God's response. Look at 8 and 9 with me. Oh, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I think two towns that were mentioned in Sodom and Gomorrah's story, so it didn't end well for them. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger, for I will not again destroy Ephraim. Do you see this here? God's compassion actually grows in response to his people and their sin. He says it right there. I'm not saying he he says it right there. My compassion grows warm and tender. I mean, the anger's there too. Look at verse 9. He says it. It's a burning anger is there, but he's their father, and they are his people, his chosen sons and daughters. And so he chooses to not act in anger, but compassion. And while he still will discipline his people, he as their father feels compassion the entire time. And the discipline will be what? Remember? To bring healing to the hurt 
muscle to bring healing and wholeness, not to destroy them or chop that body part off, but to make it right and whole again. There's a big difference between the two. One is judgment of the Holy God of the world. The other is tender, warm correction of the Father. There's a big, huge difference between the two. One is for those outside of Christ. One is for those in Christ. We're shielded from his wrath and fury because we are children of God. Psalm 103 says it. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Or that Romans 5 verse I quoted earlier, and I will see it up here now. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I have to say it carefully, but what Paul's saying there is the more we sin, the more his grace abounds. His tender, warm compassion grows for us. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you believe it? Now, this isn't an excuse to sin, as we talked about last week. Paul says that, should we sin then so grace will abound? No, you're not getting it, he says. But when we do, the reality is a heavenly father who loves us in tender mercy. And when we do, his tender compassion and heart, which he shows in the Old Testament now even, grows in compassion when he sees us harming ourselves with sin. That's why. But there's more to this. What's the one reason God gives in the passage for responding in tender compassion to sinners? You wouldn't think it would be his holiness, but that's what he says. He says his holiness. God's holiness actually moves him in warmth and tenderness towards his people when they sin. Look at verse 9. He says there, it finishes up, I'll read it again. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. That's shocking. I didn't quite, I was trying to think through that this week, and Dane Ortland helped me in his book, the Gentle Lowly book, as we're going to read through in a minute. But verse 8 and 9, they're connected. They flow together with one another. God's compassion and tenderness grow towards his people in sin because of his holiness. Because of his holiness, this is why he won't wipe out Israel, why he won't come in wrath. And I've actually never thought of this before. The brand new thought. And I'm guessing when you think of holiness, what's your first thought? It's not tender compassion, it's judgment. And that's part of it, but here's what I think this means. The only truly holy being in the world would, of course, have the most clear and true understanding of the sinfulness of sin and the destructive nature of sin, the ravaging effects of sin, what sin does to us and others and the world. And because he loves us with an unconditional love, as a holy being, when he sees us damaging ourselves and each other and the world, his emotion, what happens? Of warm, tender compassion grows because he's holy. Does that make sense? Because he can see sin as sin. Uh, Dan Ortland said it this way. Just as the purer a heart, the more horrified at evil, that's holy, so also the purer heart, the more it's naturally drawn out to help and relieve and protect and comfort. Whereas a corrupt heart sits still, indifferent. So with Christ, his holiness finds evil revolting, more revolting than any of us could ever feel. But it's that very holiness that also draws his heart out to help and relieve, protect, and comfort. 
He hates sin, it's a cliche, but loves the what? It's true. I mean, that's what we're saying, that's what's said here today. I know it's a cliche, but this passage shows us it's true. He hates sin, but loves the sinner. And since this is true, what difference should that make in your life today? Yeah, all. You're right, Bernard. (laughs) Well, it would make us quicker to run to Jesus when we sin, wouldn't it? If you know that our sin actually, alongside a holy anger, is also an even greater warmth and tender compassion for his people. It'd make us quicker to run to him when we sin, wouldn't it? When My temptation, I know yours too, is, ah, I'm going to skip church a few weeks. Let me get my act together, and then I'll feel like those holy people and get back with them. (laughs) Or read my Bible again, or, or confess because we know, if we, if we knew this, we know, we know he has open arms for us. He will not execute judgment on us because that judgment's already been poured out on Christ. He's already taken it on the cross. He can't actually pour wrath on you. He can discipline you. But Christ has already taken it. If you're in Christ. That's the first thing. We'd run to him more quickly. Second thing, we'd do this. We'd be much less defensive when our sin is exposed or pointed out to us, if we really believe this. If you really believe this, it's the gospel power. It's the power of the gospel. We don't need to deny our sin. We can own it, confess it, and be free to admit it when we're loved by this kind of God. Instead of hiding like Adam and Eve did, as we talked about last week, or hide like we do in the church. You know, we can be in a church. We can be part of a church. You can even be a covenant member in Bethany Church and still be a hiding saint. Just kind of hiding trying not to be seen, trying not to get into too many deep conversations. I can't get close to anyone here. We can not only begin to be real with our sin with God, but with others too if we believe this. Church life will be transformed if we believe that when our stuff's exposed, tenderness and gentleness is what God leads with. We will look different as a people. And the outside world will see us different as a people. And our families and our friends friendships because there's nothing to fear there's nothing to fear by even being exposed for your deepest sin because even if the people did say whoa I'm, you shared uh, yeah I would have rather not known that God's not going to ever do that he's never going to do that to you so I put some next steps in your worship folder today to, what would you do with this message how would you not let this go what, how could you keep this going here's, some, here's a couple here's the first one they're in your worship folder but they're up here take some time to read through Hosea 11 again ask yourself how do you really view God's posture towards you when you sin ask him in prayer maybe how would it change your life if you believed his heart is warm and tender towards you when you sin here's another one what can you do to access and express your own warmth and tenderness towards someone you love the next time they sin against you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for showing us your heart in Scripture. Thank you for letting us see it. In the Old Testament and the New, you are a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Help us believe that. And let it transform us into people that run to you when we do sin, knowing your fatherly arms are open, but also as we deal with others on a... um, horizontal level, quick to defend, own our stuff, and transform as a people by the power of the gospel, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.